you are now the owner of Christmas mornings, Christmas afternoons, and birthday parties. Do you want to mess that up? Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. And returning to the show, I am joined by our guest today, Rob Davio. Welcome back to the show, Rob. All right, thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Well, last time we talked about your history, everything leading up to where you were about a year ago, as well as some games that were coming out. But I wanted to talk to you about your life as a pro game designer. Rob, first off, man, I feel like since we last talked or even just in 2019 alone, you must have had like 10 games announced and or come out. So how do you manage your schedule when working on so many projects? Like, do you just go with whatever you're feeling particularly passionate about at any given time? Or do you block specific time to work on specific projects? Like, how do you spin so many plates? Diligence for the most part. (laughs) And that's the thing about working for yourself, right? If you just decide you're not going to work on a date, no one tells you you can't, other than your deadlines don't move. And I did that yesterday. It was like my first sort of just screw around day in 2019. Do you find periods where you're like, man, I'm just not feeling this project right now. I know I I really need to work on this, but this other thing is really excited and I want to chase this down while I'm actually feeling the fire. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so what I do in answer to the larger question is I have a master to-do list that's got, it's got stuff for home, you know, hey, I got to call this plumber or something like that, but mostly (laughs) it's works. It's mostly work stuff and it's big and it's between my original designs and restoration games. And if I looked at that list all day, I wouldn't know where to start. And so what I realized was I keep that list on like a tab. And at the, usually at the end of every day, I go through the list and I cross off everything that I did that day. And then I add things that cropped up that are new. And if it's a good day, I add fewer things than I crossed out. But usually it's like a push, right? You finish something on a project and you're like, well, now there's the next thing on the project. Like I don't write down every single thing I need to do for a game. It's sort of like, what do I need to do next? What are the next couple things on the event horizon? And I take this master list of like 70 things and I copy the whole thing out of my daily to-do list and I cut it down to no more than 20 and preferably 10 things that I want to do the next day. And I don't look at the master list because it's overwhelming and then I wake up the next day and I look at those 10 things and I do those 10 things. Most of the time it's about 15 or 20, but I try to do at least 10 things on a day. Um, And that doesn't include having meetings, doing podcasts. These are just like the move the game forward design stuff that I need to do. Um, But when I'm making that list of like 15 things, I'll say like, oh, I should really work on that. No, I'm not going to have enough time. That's like a real deep design thing where I need three or four hours of uninterrupted time. And looking at my schedule tomorrow, I got a bunch of meetings and a bunch of calls and I'm never going to get in the zone. So I will pick the 15 things that sort of match you know, what I want to do. And then comes the weekend, which is great because I have no meetings. And then I can actually do the deep dive, deep uh, dive design stuff. Do you actually set aside time to think of new ideas? Like, do you pencil in time, like brainstorming for future projects that'll come to fruition no. in three years? Or is that just organically happening as you're working on another project? You go, aha, this idea would be terrible for this project, but I can put this down as something else to work on. Um, I haven't done that in years. Um, and it's, and and it's not a bad thing to have with restoration games. I'm sort of the chief creative person. So I'm planning the line. So I, games will come up and things will happen. So I'm sort of blocking out the next two or three years of games. So we have a number of games that we sort of have on the horizon that we don't really have the rights for yet. And I haven't thought about yet, but they're in my head is, okay, I'm going to start thinking about this when I catch my breath. They're not even in my master to do list yet because it would be overwhelming. For my original ideas, I've been very fortunate in the past couple of years of being in a place where publishers are seeking me out to ask to work on projects. So instead of thinking of my own ideas, I have a publisher come to me and usually say, I have X game, would you like to do a legacy version of it? Right, And that's kind of what I'm known for. And I keep waiting for people to stop sort of requesting that but it seems to still (laughs) no not because like i just expect like okay what's next right like i like working on them and 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 so far the sales have been 
good enough that people are asking for it. But I keep being surprised, like, oh, we're still doing these. Okay, I'll do another one. And some I say yes to and some I say no to. But it feels like every time that I get to a point where I can catch my breath and say, well, what do I want to do? Um, another one of these opportunities comes up. In addition, I have at least two, but probably closer to five games that are basically done that for whatever reason, the deal fell apart with the publisher, that as soon as I catch my breath, I'm going to go back to those and either find another publisher for or self-publish them. And I keep saying, oh, I'll get to that by summer, fall, winter, right? Like, and I keep finding these moments because when a publisher does come to me, they usually have a, a schedule. Oh, we want this game for a 2021 line. And we talk back when I would have to be done. And I realize, oh, I have to start like in a month, you know, to hit your deadline. And I try to say no to as many as I can. But I also realize that like an author, like a, a movie actor, like a musician, I have this very limited window where people want to work with me before they move on to the next thing they want to work on. So I try to <laughs> yeah. I try to balance between um, saying yes to too many things and getting burnt out and also saying, no, I'll, I'll work with you in a couple of years and then having people move on to like the next thing. So it's a constant balance of trying to find that that workload. Um, all of these things are show that I have a successful career. So I can't complain about any of them. Sometimes I'm a little too busy and I feel like, oh, I don't want to think about a game again. And then I take a weekend off and go watch a baseball game and cook and be like, oh, I'm ready to go back to work. And uh, But I'd like to dial it back a little bit to, to, to just, I'd like weekends back or Sundays. Sundays would be good to have. Yeah, that's the dream, man. Just like having yeah. some time where you can unwind and you don't even have to think about all of the other things that you're working on. Yeah, but I mean, but to be fair, I also know that, um, I mean, especially if I don't have meetings, like one to three o'clock is just in the afternoon is my downtime. I have lunch and my brain's like, ugh, you're tired. I get up at seven in the morning. Usually I'm at work seven to eight and I'm ready to go. Boom, boom, boom. Look at this. I'm going to crush this list of 15 things by lunch. I never do, but I always think I do. And I hit one o'clock, I have a meal and I'm like, oh, I'm done. And if I don't have meetings because I work for myself, I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to read a book, watch a TV show, take a walk. And here you are, some other stuff. nine o'clock Eastern time, talking on a podcast with some guy in Alaska. You just don't stop. Yeah, I try to leave my nights open, but I recognize for things like podcasts, people are in different time zones and a lot of people have day jobs. So it kind of encroaches into my nights. But that's the one thing I do kind of protect is I get to about five o'clock at night and I'm done because I started at seven. I probably put in a 10 hour day, maybe eight hours if I took some hours here and there. And I'm like, I got nothing left. Cooking's my hobby. I go cook. I have a glass of wine. I uh, watch some baseball and I, I recharge for the next day. But even still, sometimes I'll find myself on the couch go, oh, you have your laptop. You're answering emails. What are you doing? You know, you've mentioned cooking twice now. And we actually talked about it quite a bit last time that you were on the show. And it's something that we have in common. I, I see the things that you put online and I go like, man, I, I would like to be able to cook the way Rob Davio cooks. But or at least how it looks like it tastes how it looks i only put yeah yeah i always put up the stuff that looks good and, you know and i take eight pictures to get it to look that good exactly exactly but i i had this question set aside as something like man if we have some extra time i might as well ask this but hey we're here we've been talking about cooking what what's the last meal that you had that like inspired you did you feel good was it relief was it something that kind of centered you or you know like what was the the lasting feeling that you had because i feel like this this interest in food has a greater impact on you than just nourishment well there's really two of them because why give one answer when you can give two that's why podcasts um, exist man yeah <laughs> um on Sunday. It was very hot here. We had a heat wave on the East Coast. It was like 92 degrees. And my wife was out of town. My daughter's like a grown up. So it's just my son and me. And I thought, I want to, I want a barbecue, which is kind of a weird thing to think when it's 95 degrees, but I knew it'd be cooler like at six at night. And um, I just had some potatoes left over. That's what started it. That's that when you talk about original ideas, I'm like, what am I going to do with those potatoes? I'm like, I want to grill. I'm like, do I want to grill something? And my son loves pork tenderloin. So I'm like, I'll grill a pork tenderloin. And then I started thinking like, well, what do I want the flavor to be? And I started backing up and I did like a hickory, lightly hickory smoked charcoal grilled 
potatoes and pork tenderloin. Um, and, and it's the middle of summer here. So I have like rosemary bushes and mint and all these things growing and I'm like cutting it and doing all sorts of stuff. And I just kind of nailed that pork tenderloin. Um, just like the perfect blush of pink in the middle, nice char on the outside, kissed with smoke. And then I've got this new thing I do, which is I, um, I take the meat off when I'm cooking it and let, when you let it rest and note to everyone, let your meat rest for a few minutes to many minutes, depending on the size of it. Totally. Um, I take a cutting board and I just minced garlic and I chopped up rosemary and I put some smoked paprika cause I'm a sucker for it and just made like a slurry on the board. And then when I took the meat off to rest, I put it on the board and just rolled it around in it. And then when the juices kind of came out and went in, it cooked the garlic just enough oh, and dude. sort of coated the whole thing and stuck to it. Yeah, that's the secret. It's just leave a mess on your cutting board. And when the meat's done, just roll <laughs> it around in it. Uh, don't let have raw meat on it. But, you know, other than that, you're good to go. And um, I sliced it. And my son took a bite. And just a look on his face, just a look of, oh, like, dad, what did you make here? Like, that was just a moment. Right, because it was a perfect bite for him. He just walked by and grabbed it, and it was just this amazing thing. Now, that being said, I totally screwed up the potatoes. But what are you going to do? Hey, if you got that good a tenderloin, then who needs the potatoes? Yeah, I well, I realized that the potatoes absorb too much smoke, so Mm. they were a little ashtray thing. Because potatoes take forever to cook, and the extra time on the grill had too much smoke, and I could see it coming. So I was moving the vents to try to do it, but it was still too much. So I pulled them early. They weren't done, but they were over smoke, so I put them in the microwave. Finished them in the microwave, and then I realized that um, a lot of reason barbecue has like pickles and stuff is acid can cut smoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I made a uh, really lime juice heavy mayonnaise and just kind of put the potatoes in there with some cilantro. And almost saved it, not quite. They're still a little smoky. But... <laughs> I'm sure everyone who is watching this video or listening to the podcast is like. Damn, I would eat those potatoes in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, I got some left over. So I, I, in the morning, I'm getting up every once in a while and heating them back up and putting like a real runny egg on them so that the yolk coats them. Oh, a little dude, bit of that, that is the best. Like when you, man, getting like some potatoes in, in like a cast iron skillet and then in the morning and just get a really runny egg on top of that. Yeah. There's nothing yeah, better. Oh, yeah. Dude. Yeah, so that's like the cooking thing. And and I said there were two answers. The real quick one, I won't wax as poetic because I happened to be in Los Angeles a couple weeks ago for work and I treated myself, which I do about once a year, to a really nice dinner. So I went to Jose Andreas. Uh, he has a restaurant called The Bazaar in Beverly Hills and got a 16-course tasting. And if you go back on my Twitter feed, you can see it. And I got it paired with wines and everything like that. And I had a stipend because I was traveling for a client. So I'm like, this isn't costing me that much. It's basically taking my entire stipend for three days and one day, but whatever. <laughs> um, and that that was a, one of my favorite meals. That was a sublime meal. When you meet people who really know how to do anything, paint, cook, make music. Make board games. Know, make board games. Uh, like cobble a shoe. Like just people like put shrubs around your house to make it look good. When you see someone who like takes real pride in it and rises up, like it's an amazing moment to see a craftsperson where you're like, oh, wow, I never thought about this thing that seems so mundane, like eating a meal, that someone could like it so much to bring it up to that level. And it it kind of applies to just a lot of things where someone gets passionate about making something or doing something. Do you ever view yourself in that same light that someone might be watching this video right now taking you know any sort of inspiration about the the things that you do the things that you create the passion that you have for the work that you do do you see yourself at that artisan level um most of the time no because when you're in the middle of it it's just the to-do right, list, right right it's the to-do list and another thing and how am i going to make this deadline and can i do something interesting again and what does the audience want and i'm sure the people who made my meal at this restaurant Felt the same way. It was a Friday night. Totally. And they made it and they're like, uh, and they had a bad day and it was another thing they did. Every once in a while, and it happened sometime in the past couple of weeks, I'll get this moment where I'll kind of like, someone will mention a game I did a while ago and I'll go, wait a minute. I've done some cool games. <laughs> hey, you know what? I I made an impact here. I, I've done oh, something like, cool. And then it goes away, right? Like it's right, this fluttering yeah. moment where I can sort of see it outside. And it's like, wow, 
anyway, I got these emails to answer and what's that contract, right? And you go right back in the middle. And I, I, I try to enjoy it. It's just when you're in the middle of the day-to-day stuff. Um, I hope I retire at some point. I live long enough to gain reflection on my entire life, including my career, and get a perspective. And I'll be like, oh, I, I did that well. I didn't do that well. I'd like to do that over. But I'm certainly enjoying it so far. Hey, that's the important part. And hey, you're also, you know, just coming out with nonstop interesting things. I mean, whether it's this uh, collab that has a resulting enormous Cthulhu miniature or you're reviving things through restoration games. I mean, and like you said earlier, you're the, the legacy guy. Your legacy is partially legacy games and that kind of in a lot of ways, change the landscape of tabletop gaming. So I, I think you'll have a lot to reflect on. But I, I wanted to get back to this this notion that publishers or, or other designers or other individuals' clients are, are coming to you and pitching things to you. What does that look like? Does someone just say, hey, I want a Rob Davio project. It doesn't matter what it is. I just want a game. Or are they bringing you a theme? Or are they even bringing you like an outline of the type of game that they want and then leave it in your hands. It's not an open blank check and I wouldn't want that. Right. 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 I mean, I've had another publisher saying, Hey, if you have any ideas, please pitch them to us. You know, the type of work we do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, that means I'm a professional successful designer. So yeah, I'll take yeah. that. But what I'm talking about is, for example, I've got Machi Koro legacy coming out mm-hmm. from Pandasaurus um, next month. And a couple years ago, the publisher came and said, what do you think of a Machi Koro legacy? And I went, I don't, I don't know like that. I don't, I don't think so. Maybe like, what's that like? And I went back and I played the game again. I went, Oh, it's pretty straightforward, which is what I look for in a legacy game, right? Mm -hmm. You start with something pretty straightforward and you can go in unexpected directions. I'm like, Oh, they have an expansion. I played the expansion. Like, Oh, they've already started to push it in a few different ways. But I wasn't quite sure. And then um, J.R. Honeycutt, who's a co-designer on it, and I were talking about it. And um, we just started riffing. And we realized the, if we didn't take it too seriously, right? I mean, with Pandemic Legacy, I sometimes write things. I'm like, here is theme, and here is like literature, and here is structure, and here is I'm going to put you in an emotional place where you are this person in this situation. And I was like, well, if you just get away from that, and you go, well, this is kind of a fairy tale. I mean, you're just building these silly shops. Suddenly, a whole bunch of design space opened up. And and so, what I usually say to a, a client or something, if they if they do something that is, because I've I've said yes to a project and then started working, I realize I, I don't I don't have an idea. I like I get a contract and the clock is ticking. And you know, it then it's like I work and I work and I revise it and I revise it and I and, you know and then. It's like really tough. It's like if you had this idea and there was no client, you'd go, eh, wasn't a good idea and you'd move on. But now I'm sort of shackled to a contract. So what I say, and I think I said it to Machikor, is what, what's not sign a contract? Just give me three or four weeks. And if I feel like there's something worth pitching to, I'll, I'll pitch it to. But then I still pitch it to them. And if they're like, yeah, I like where that's going, I think I would work. I'm like, yeah, and I've actually sort of play tested a, a game let's go to contract on it now i know a lot of the the games that you're working on are under contract but do you have any examples of games where you know either it was under contract or maybe it was your own personal project a while ago and you got to a point where you knew that you were stuck and you had to stop and then you kind of let it rest for a year or two or maybe even more than that and ended up kind of resurrecting the project with a new perspective. Yeah, there's one. I won't get into who the original person was because I just don't need to get into like contract situations. But there was a license game I was working on and I was finished and I turned it over. And um, after like a year and a half, we realized it wasn't exactly what they wanted or some stuff had changed with the license. And I said, look, just just give it back because I think it's a good game. And I'm not quite sure where you are with this license, but it doesn't seem to be the game for you right now with the license the way it is. And then I kind of like let it sit on my shelf for six months or it had been like a year and a half, almost two years since I looked at it. And I looked at it this spring and I said, it's a good game. And I rethemed it away from the license, obviously. 
And I brought it to like an unpub and I played it a couple times and people really liked it. And I noticed some flaws that I hadn't seen before and some things that I wanted to tweak, like the normal development cycle, like, oh, it's a co-op game. And usually with a co-op game, there's one way to win and multiple ways to lose, which was true in here. But only one of them was going to trigger. I said, mm. you'll never lose on these other three conditions. Right, right. You'll just always lose on this one. And this is the one that you lose on really late. So you always feel like you're about to win. Mm. But you might have lost early. And I said, I need to get the other, you know, I need to rebalance a few things. And then I had rethemed it with like a Norse theme and called it Loki. And then and then Yellow put out like a kids line called Loki this summer or this spring. Right, right. And I was like, oh, okay. I had a plan B for a theme, so I'm just going to retheme it again to plan B. Like I was tort- caught between this Norse thing and like a different idea and – I was like, well, I'm going to go with a different idea. And and my friend from high school helped me out on it. So he's got like a little bit of a like design share and I'm supposed to see him and I'm going to be like, let's just make it sillier. I feel like a lot of games take themselves seriously and I've had a lot of fun Dude, lately. so many games take themselves dead seriously. Lately with like Fireball Island and like giant Cthulhu miniatures and realize we're making toys and games. Right. right? We, we can just loosen up a little bit and I take myself seriously sometimes so the loki theme was very serious like there is you know loki is playing mischief and you're all vikings and i'm like i love these great minis and i still don't think it's a bad idea but like this other idea is just goofy Mm -hmm. and i'm like i want to repaint this as a goofy idea and see if it just kind of loosens up a little bit it gets a little less you know uptight about the whole thing you know that's an interesting thing i actually think about richard garfield here because of course he's known for being the creator of magic the gathering but i feel like every game that he's released since magic has been a very silly or fun uh creative theme like that that is definitely not taking it so self-seriously as that original set of magic was i wonder if there's a degree of reaction to that Huh, that's interesting. I'll have to make a note of that. Right? Like sometimes it can just be dumb fun. And that's fine. Sometimes it should take itself seriously. But I've been taking myself a bit too seriously like three or four years ago. And I'd like to loosen up a bit. Well, I think there is something artistic about that. I mean, you think about like, for example, The Far Side by Gary Larson. I mean, so much of that is just dumb absurdity put into single panels but it holds up so incredibly well in almost like a profound way that Gary Larson would be ashamed to admit. But, you know, you can do something just because it's fun, not because it makes sense. Removing some artistic shackles. I I think so. And a lot of the games that I have coming out um, in the next year really embody that. Like we mentioned Death May Die with the giant Cthulhu figure. Yep. Um, Eric Lang and I, when we were designing it last year, kind of said, I think it was Eric who pitched this, like, what if it was a 90s TV show that had been a competitor to X-Files but got canceled? (laughs) So we don't even call them scenarios. We call them episodes. And then there's a couple, like, Kickstarter exclusives or add-ons that, I don't know if they're exclusive, which are called, like, the Lost Episodes, where we deliberately wrote scenarios that are just nutty, just not... Not serious at all, where you're like, oh, no, these were the ones, it says, like, left on the cutting room floor. Right. This is after the show got canceled mid-season, but they, you know, were like, well, we might be able to sneak in a few extra episodes, and they never yeah. really got the budget to finish them. But, you know, right. this is what they what they hope to do eventually. Yeah, and so I've, like, started saying to people, like, oh, it was a competitor to X-Files that got canceled after the second season. Aaron's like, oh, that sounds great. Like, because it just paints it as sort of, I mean, the quality of the miniatures are great and the art is great. But if you just kind of go into it with a vibe like, oh, it's a series you'd find on Netflix that sort of has a good campy fun. And Ship Shape that I have coming out with Calliope has a draw pile that you can see into, right, on these big foam tiles. And Unmatched is anyone fighting anyone. And Machi Cora Legacy is just whimsical fun. So I, I've had fun lately just saying, like, uh, let's just... Let's just have fun. Let's just play a game. Like, oh, that's fun. 
You know, you mentioned that uh, Death May Die, the co-design with Eric Lang, and over the last couple of years, you've had some really amazing collaborative design projects. I mean, you also had Pandemic Legacy with good old Leaky. And then, oh, yeah. Leaky. Yeah. Really? Does he know you call him that? Hey, I, I, I think I may have mentioned that uh, in an interview with him. I can't think of anyone who would go by that nickname less. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Back. Now, um, it, it's a it's a running joke. My pandemic crew, the people that I played Legacy with uh, through two seasons of Legacy 1, one season of Legacy 2, uh, we... Um, they are diehard pandemic fans, and they've affectionately referred to Matt Leacock as Leaky anytime that they're like, "Oh, Leaky got us on this one," and so uh, it just amazing. stuck. Yeah, yeah, for oh, sure. Yeah, no, we're we're Matt and I are done. This is the design of season three. You're done. It's it's, it's with the publisher. Whoa, we're okay. done. It's not done. There's a lot of hoops to jump through before the game is done, but. We are now, we have moved to reacting to the publisher, the developer, the art people, everything else, like starting to say, what do you think about this? And what do you think? And like, we're doing this and we don't get a final vote, but they're, they're kind enough to give us like input. How much is season three influenced by reaction, say to season two, or for that matter, how much of season two was reactionary to season one? Because I, I know that... From my perspective, they're both great games. I I love how different Pandemic Legacy Season Two was, uh, but I know that the reaction to them was was different. I think a lot of that is because the the landscape was different when Pandemic Legacy Season One came out versus when Season Two came out. Yeah. Um, well, we started Season Two before Season One came out, so it wasn't manipulated or influenced by it at all we said well, what do we think we did right now that we've what do we think we um we had let's see it was april and we had finished like six months earlier We're like okay we've had six months perspective what you know now that it's all settled and we've read the the files and the documents where do we think we went right and went wrong and we wrote it down we're like, we think we did more right than wrong, so we feel pretty good about that. But how do we just not do the same thing again? Because people have just played 15, 17 games of Pandemic. How, are, how do we not give them 15 or 17 more with a different story? <laughs> and then season one came out when we were six months into season two and kind of about halfway done or had the big decisions made. And I was like, oh, thank goodness we started this because I would have been heavily like, oh, what did we do right? Why is this happening? Right? Like, And then we wouldn't have known where to start. Um, so one of the things we did do is on the second half of season two, we looked at some of the things that people said like, oh, you know, this was, I didn't like this. I like this and tried to change it. And sometimes it's little stuff like in season one, there are eight boxes that you can open and then there are the dossiers and the dossiers start again at one through eight. And we mm -hmm. made sure for season two and for like season three, there's no duplicate numbers. If we tell you to open box three, there isn't also a door three. Yeah. And there isn't a sticker through like everything has its unique number. So you you can't mess it up. We're like, right. We didn't think of that in the early half of season two before even season one came out. We said, OK, look, this is probably going to be a trilogy. We should probably think of season three at this point so we can make two m make sense with three. Right. So that they it feels like it went together. So we took like a day or two as like a diversion and did some very broad brushstrokes of what three would be like. And then went, okay, well, we'll figure that out in a couple of years. And then went back to two. So when we started three, fall of 2016, so almost three years ago, we had some idea of what we wanted to do. Of course, most of our ideas didn't quite pan out. But the big broad brushstrokes of the time and the place and the plot um, actually held up and were in place. Um but I think that um, it's going to sound incredibly egotistical, so forgive me. But I feel like there's a <laughs> there's an analogy where season one was like Star Wars and that people hadn't seen something like that before. Right. And season two is like Empire Strikes Back. It was a little darker, a little grittier. I think it's a better constructed game than season one. Um, but everyone's like, oh, yeah, I saw that. Right. Like it didn't get the accolades and it didn't get the like attention that it did now some people can argue that season one's put together the better than season two and stuff like that but i think and we knew it before it came out We're like how do you think this will do i'm like they've seen it 
right? People will like it, but it won't get the attention. It won't get the awards. It will just be more of a smoldering fire than a raging fire. And that's exactly what happened. I expect season three to be hopefully Return of the Jedi and not like Godfather 3. So you're saying there's going to be Ewoks in the Pandemic Legacy season three? Promising Ewoks? I'm just saying there's a forest moon. There we go. Perfect. Do you hear it? I'm just going to leave it right there. It's it's populated by whoever you want it to. So I (laughs) predict season three will be, um, again, quieter than the first two just by just by the necessity of how these things work, right? Like it, it, we tried to make three as different from two as two was one. And actually there's a lot of world building and a lot of story and everything, but you just know at some point people go, are they still making these things? You know, it's it's just the nature of it. So on these projects, these collabos that you do and even restoration games, I mean, by its very nature, like you, you are always collaborating on these games that are coming out. Like, how do you resolve conflict, like, when you're working with another designer and you feel opposed when it comes to a core game principle, whether it's Pandemic or, you know, it's Death May Die or any number of things that you've worked on? Do you just kind of massage it until there's a compromise? Do you view one person as the lead designer on it that gets to make that kind of call? Do you just kind of antagonize the other person until they finally no. give in? No, that's not my style. Um, <laughs> every, every game's different. Every partnership's different. I like collaborating because I'm a talker. No, right? I get a really? lot of ideas. Yeah, I get a lot of ideas by talking. If you put me in front of a... If I'm doing content development, like story and writing and things like that, I will definitely want some quiet time. But if we're doing that early design of what it's supposed to be like and throwing around ideas, I love talking them over. I love sitting at a table and talking about it and writing notes down and putting pieces of paper on the board and things like that and and sort of making it happen. Um, So that's why I like doing so many collaborations. But every partnership's a little bit different, like technically – I'm the chief creative at Restoration Games, so any game that comes out, I can be a tiebreaker, but I don't ever want to use that as a hammer. So Isaac Childress and I are co-designing Return to Dark Tower, and we have, a like, Justin is working on it, and we have developed this whole, like, 12 people working on this project. Um, but I always want to make sure if Isaac and I are in a different place on something, that we're like, okay, well, let's just try it. Let's let the playtesters decide what they like. Or, well, I'll say, like, I don't, I think this might be a little too complicated or I think this isn't quite working or he might say, "Ah, I think this is unbalanced or something. And I'll just be like, yeah, it might be. Let's just, let's just go now and play it now. We're not done. Right. It's not until things get done that you have to make those final decisions. Like just play the game. Have you ever been on a project and you decided like I've taken this as far as I can and you bring in someone else? You're like, man, I need a co-designer on this. Originally, this was a a Rob joint only. And now I need to bring someone else in for different perspective or to kind of work their magic because you realize that it's someone else's realm of expertise, anything like that. Oftentimes it's not as a co-designer. I like to do those from start, but it's a developer. So I would either bring someone and be like, man, I got this game. I feel it's like on the verge of being great, but I can't figure it out. So if it's something casual, like I might be with Eric Lang at a convention. Be like, Can I just pick your brain? You know, was before he was exclusive to Simon, But like, you know, can I just pick your brain as a professional? That's a, like I got this that, game. That's got to be quite the playground to pick. Uh, the, I can't imagine what the inside of uh, the the inner workings of the mind of um, Eric you're, Lang you're, are. You're signing up to be told your idea is bad. So. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, and he's he's always he's not always right. I mean, sometimes I'll disagree with him, but often like he'll say something, and I'll be like, "No, no, you're not seeing it. I was trying to do this," and then then I'll like two days later, I'll be like. No, he had a point there, right? And like mm-hmm. it'll, but he, and he's just not going to mince words about it. He's not going to be delicate about it, which is something I've kind of picked up from him sometimes when I have to give feedback to someone. Like, look, I'm going to give you some feedback, and it's going to be unblemished, and I need you to just take it as it is. Um, sometimes I'll hire a developer. Look, can I give you some money for you to spend a week with it, play it, analyze it, get back to me, say I like this, I don't like this. You know, why why is this system in here? Where's your focus? Or I'll just it's like a game therapist. Right, you pay someone to just be like, "Why are you doing this? Why, what's the real motivation here?" And you have to like, "Ah, don't make me self-analyze." Um, 
but I've never gotten to a point where a game's almost done and say, I need a co-designer. Cause I really think that there'll never be a co-designer. There'll be a developer kind right. of like the game by that point is baked in and they're like, Oh, I see what you did. And then I see like, no, you, the, the ends too long. And I'm doing that now in a way we have a game for restoration where we hired some outside designers and, um, and every step of the way, they're like, we're going to do this. We're going to like, this is great. This is great. And I played early versions. And then I'm in the middle now. I'm like, mm, I got to do a deeper development pass than I expected to. No fault of theirs, right? I just had the time to be a different perspective and go in. And I've gone back to them like, I'm doing a deeper dive. And they're like, no, let's meet on it. Maybe we'll back up and work on it together. Um, it's just there are so many games coming out. And there's so many games that like the bell curve of bad to OK to really good games is the same. <laughs> great yeah. games i guess but there's just more of them and so if you're caught in the like this game is okay you're not one of dozens or one of hundreds you're one of thousands and so i'm very stubborn that way i'll be like okay this game is is fine like no one's gonna hate it but we gotta stand out and so i will be a little relentless about the whole thing that's an interesting thing about the review world that i've been thinking about lately is that reviewers uh often get under criticism for like i i guess liking so many games they're like yeah this is a good game or you know and the general audience is like no tell us a game's bad how can we trust that a game is actually good if you say like nine out of ten games are good and the truth is is that nine out of ten games that would end up on a reviewer's radar are probably Decent games. I mean, and, and so do you say a game is bad compared to excellent? Or do you say a game is good because it is a good game? It just doesn't happen to be excellent. It's a very nuanced thing. And it's challenging because really bad games, like a game that you would you would be comfortable just saying like, no, th this is kind of trash. The, those don't really make it onto many people's radars, let alone come out by the, the big major publishers. It, it happens sometimes. Right, uh, yeah. But um, there, there are just so many very good games that are coming out now that it is extremely hard to stand out uh, and, and be that excellent game, that, that kind of landscape-shaking game that, that uh, a lot of people are chasing after. Yeah, I mean, I will I will ask myself, I will ask other people at Restoration or partners, I'll be like, why do people want to, the people who play this game, what is another game they would play that's like this, and why would they play ours? What is a reviewer going to say that makes our game interesting? Not a gimmick, but why is this going to stand out? What, what is the art doing? Is the name good enough? Are the pieces good enough? If you're walking by a table, what's going to make you stop and pay attention to this game rather than the five games on a different table at a convention. If you're playing it and you're learning the rules, like what what is the thing you're going to think of where you're like, oh, that's what I want to try on my first turn. If you finish, win or lose, what makes you want to play again? I mean, these are the constantly the things that I'm asking for and asking about. And it's um, it's a little tiring sometimes, but um, the, the game world and like the book world and like the movie world is filled with a lot of B minuses. And I've made many. In some games, you would say I, they would aspire to be by B minuses, and they're far below it. <laughs> but if the entire world is doing C pluses and B minuses and Bs, and occasionally there's a, like, how do you stand out in this world? Um, like where you can't say anything bad about them. Oh, it's good. Would you play it again? Yeah. You're gonna keep it? No, I'll probably give it away. Mm -hmm. But you'd play it? Sure, if someone else asked, but I'm not going to bring it out myself. Right. I mean, that's like a tough place to be. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a weird landscape. That's all I can say. Like, I, every time I hear about, like, board game bubbles or, you know, that the, the, the hobby and the industry is growing at a rate that's unsustainable because, you know, people get to a critical mass of games that they're just not going to buy anymore. You know, like... I, I try to not speculate too much on that kind of stuff because that, that's not my realm of expertise. You know, like if you wanted to talk about social work and foster kids and kids getting adopted, you know, that's where I put a lot of my life into studying the, the hard facts on. But as far as games and 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 growth and the the landscape, all I can do as you know a talking head who's on podcasts, who does reviews, that kind of stuff, is I can just kind of sit on the sidelines and go like, games are really weird compared to where they were ten years ago. In that a game that 
feels like a really good game, a really interesting game, can go completely, completely unnoticed now, whereas not just because of the the progression of time, but where the, the industry is at, um, I, I think it would make a, a much bigger splash 10 years ago. I, I totally agree. And that puts a, a, a position, me in a position or people like me, like, okay, do I do more games of pretty good quality and hope one just gets lucky and breaks out? Or do I do fewer games to try to do great, great quality knowing none of them may make it, and then I haven't spread my bets around. Right. Right. If I swing for the fences every time, I'm more likely to strike out. If I hit a lot of singles, no one cares. I also like baseball. Baseball and food, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a good thing that you have a game that people are really excited about, and I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to ask a couple unmatched questions before I let you go, because we could just talk about this like deep philosophical stuff for ever because i i just feel like we could do that but instead unmatched this was a unique opportunity for you because you are restoring a game that you had involvement in you this is a design uh that you worked on uh previously and like in in restoring the i guess game system uh, and rebranding it and making it modern for uh, 2019, were there things that you went back to and you're like, oh, these were obviously ideas that were products of the time and I, I would never want to have something like this in the current market? And were there any ideas that you had that maybe were more begrudgingly changed where you're like, man, I really love this aspect of the system, but... I got to let it go. I got to let it go if I want the this new this new system under a new name to be, you know, something that works in today's gaming hobby. More of the former than the latter, but not a lot of it. So, first of all, because I had worked on the original with Craig Van Ness's Star Wars Epic Duels in 2002, I recused myself from some of the restoration work and let Justin Jacobson, the president of Restoration Game and JR Honeycutt the designer, I'm like, you guys work on this for like six months, pitch stuff to me, but I don't want it. Cause I'll just repeat the same thing. <laughs> right. I'll be like, Oh, yep. this is how we do it. Right. Like I'm not going to think I would think of some new ideas, but I wanted radical new ideas, not, Oh, let me tweak this and make a four from a three. Um, so we kind of looked at it and mapped out the problems. They found, you know, they're on solutions and we went back and forth on it. And then later in the process, I started play testing stuff and said, oh, yeah, this is a different game. Let me do development work on it, right? And kind of get my hands dirty on it after I'd taken a journey through other people's hands. Um, Star Wars Epic Duels was designed to be a six-week opportunistic game that came out as a tie-in to Attack of the Clones for eight-year-olds. <laughs> that, um, that sounds... Um, reductive, but accurate. No. So the question is, you get that on your desk at Hasbro, and the question is, do you make a piece of crap, or do you try to make the best game you can because you know that those eight-year-olds may grow up to be gamers, and then, you know I mean, someday you might meet them and be like, I played that with a kid, as a kid with my dad, and I loved it tremendously, and my dad has since passed away, and thank you for the memories of my childhood. Because I've gotten that conversation. And you're like, well, thank goodness I did a good job. Right. Like, you know, like just because it's an opportunistic six week thing for Attack of the Clones doesn't mean you go, well, I'm going to give crap then. Right. Um, right. Because I take pride in my work. So you look at some stuff, there's a grid, like a checkerboard grid. And you're like, well, that that worked there because a kid would understand it in 2002. They understand. But that doesn't make sense. And then the one thing I think we didn't do a great job on is it's a it's a dueling battling game. And the original one was anyone from Star Wars fights anyone else with Star from Star Wars. So you'd have Han and Chewie versus Darth Vader and a bunch of stormtroopers. And you could have these sidekicks like Chewie could die and, and then it would just be Han. And what do you do? It was a um, deck of cards, an asymmetric deck of cards. Like, what do you do with the Chewbacca cards if he's dead and you're still in the game? And I don't think we did a good job in the original I was solving that. And I remember talking to Craig and be like, how about this? How about this? How about this? How about this? And we're like, uh, this is fine. We're out of time. Um, so we did try to fix that in a couple different ways. Um, we wanted to make like ranged creatures attack like a queen in chess because they were, um, it was like a, che a checkerboard. 
Um, so once we change that, then how do range creatures people work? I said, I don't want to count. I, I gave demands like it was type. Of, I don't want any line of sight. I don't want to measure partial hex. I don't want to measure full hexes. <laughs> I don't want to measure like corners of walls. Like how do we get line of sight without having to do line of sight rules? How is this a introductory level game where you can go, oh, wow, that's cool. I didn't have to learn this and that. How do you play a game? How do you play a skirmish game where you're you're not going to forget any rules, or if you forget one, it's minor. It doesn't stop the game at the end of the game. Like, oh, we were forgetting this rule, but the game played fine. How does it play fine without a couple of the little things that make it play great? Um, so with that in mind, then we sat down and started looking at, at the game itself. Um, and Unmatched isn't a Star Wars license, but it's still sort of anyone fights anyone, and it's a partnership with Mondo, and they're bringing... Not, the general rule of thumb split is we do unlicensed versions packs and they do licensed versions. So they have Jurassic Park and Buffy and Bruce Lee all within the system. And we have two sets that are coming out at Gen Con and one more that's been announced. And so between all of these, you have quite a robust little world all sharing the same rule system. Is there a, a, an IP, a license that if you could get any to work within Unmatched, the the dream for you personally, the selfish thing that you would pursue, even if no one else in the world would appreciate it, what is it? Well, well, yes and no. Like uh, I was a big fan of like uh, like I watched the TV show Battle of the Planets in the 1970s, and I have a soft spot for it. It doesn't mean it would make a good match for this. Like they were kind of non-combatants and no one under the age of 50 is going to know what's talking about. <laughs> like, and so like I'm, when I say like, oh, if I could have a dream license, like, well, that's not a dream license. That's just me saying, here's a TV show I liked as a kid. Right. Um, and then I put on the, um, I put on the businessman hat and I said, well, what's a good thing that kind of matches here that has combatants that has the, like the widest marketing audience that fits and has a different fighter style for what we've done. And the sculpts are good. And right. Like if I put it through a different filter, I come up with a different answer. Um, you know, like uh, there's a lot of things that I like that I go, yeah, but that wouldn't make a good set. Uh, but we talk between the two companies, we talk about a bunch of outrageous licensing stuff to the point where the Mondo license people are like, that's not how licensing works. Like you can't just say this thing and like have it work. Like I know we're just having fun. The other thing that's interesting about licensing and you is restoration games, and you you have to seek out these licenses. So uh, because I, I want to have one last selfish question about restoration games is uh, how's Hero Quest coming along? We getting that? Oh, Hero Quest. That's like our. That's that's like in our. That's our top three. Um, most requested inevitably yeah, yeah. people I are mean, going Dark to ask Tower about was it up there and fireball i was up there and there's a couple others that are still on the on the wish list and hero quest and um we're aware of it that was a game that was done by milton bradley and actually the guy who designed it and i actually worked for him for like 10 years at hasbro like in the last decade but advanced hero quest in particular used the ip from games workshop so the long answer short is there's international companies co-owning pieces of this exactly <laughs> and then i think but i have i'm not even sure i think the name itself lapsed and now was owned by a french company doing an app or something so that's like another piece and also what even is that game if it were to come out today like how do you satisfy something that that works for modern audiences that that is in this same space that Gloomhaven and Midara and Star Wars Imperial Assault and all these other games are playing in, but also it satisfies the kid that's me that loved Hero Quest when I was playing with my elder brother, waiting for my dad to get home from work every day. You know, like that that has gotta be a challenging thing because dungeon crawlers have come a long way. I would do my homework, play yeah. Hero Quest figure out what it was, play the other games you've mentioned, see where they've come and say, why did people like this? Did this lead to these? In which point, if we just age it up like these, we're just duplicating. What makes this feel different from those? But at the same time, it's probably out of date. So how do we make, how do we keep the feel of this, but modernize the stuff underneath? And that's a lot of what I do um, is some very squishy stuff where I say, how does this feel like Fireball Island? How does this feel like Dark Tower? What are the moments that are going to tickle that part of your brain where you go, oh, oh, this is like I'm 10 again. 
And even if you're like, I don't know why, I don't know why this just felt like I was a little kid again. Like that's what I'm trying to coax out. And that's just, that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) All right. All right. All right. Well, uh, as I said, I could talk about a bajillion things, but uh, we're going to have to save that for episode three of having you on the podcast. So is there anything that you have right on the horizon that we haven't touched on that you feel super excited about that you want people to know? The only one I haven't really sort of we haven't talked about is there's a Fireball Island expansion coming out at Gen Con or and then a little bit after called Spider Springs, which is great because it's got spiders that leap up and it. It's actually got a spring and a launcher and spiders and Volcar vomits spiders out his mouth because there's a card called uh, Arachnoclism. It's great. You know, I do not have the nostalgia for Fireball Island. I didn't even know about it until Restoration Games had it coming out. Which is interesting. Almost the same exact time as HeroQuest. Exactly, exactly. I had a weird childhood. I was, I was born yeah. in Manila, Philippines. I lived in New oh, Delhi, really? India for a while. It, it was it was a different childhood. Oh, I'm going to interview you sometime about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I played Fireball Island with my son, and I had zero nostalgia about it. And he he's, he's young, and it was a blast. And it was one of the best parenting gaming experiences that i ever had so that alone thank you for not capturing my childhood but defining my parenthood as a gamer you're gonna get me choked up this is this is why i do my job right i would give a speech to interns when they are there at hasbro like oh we do this we do this i put my hand on their shoulder and i would sort of say a tongue-in-cheek but i'm like hey you are now the owner of christmas mornings christmas afternoons and birthday parties do you want to mess that up (laughs) It's true. It means a lot. It it means a lot. When I reflect on the moments of my life, when you reflect on the moments of your life, I mean, uh, there's profound experiences built around these things we play with. Seems like a good place to stop. All right, Rob. Well, thank you so much for coming back onto the show. And for everybody uh, who is listening, if you uh, want to check out this as a video, it's up on the video channel. Thanks again for coming onto the show. Thank you. If you enjoyed this video, we have all kinds of other reviews, interviews, and recommendations via writing, podcasts, and video here on our channel and website, CardboardHerald.com. Our content is audience-supported, so if you want to show your support, please visit our Patreon. Thank you so much much for watching. This has been the Cardboard Herald.